One of the problems of marital discord is the issue of nagging. It's, it's not that men are the only ones nagged, but generally it's men that are nagged uh, because they need to be and because they're the ones who resent it. But the problem is not so much that men are nagged, the problem is that women do not understand what nagging is, whereas every man does, especially those who have been nagged. Uh, just take a moment in your minds and just try and think how would you define nagging? If you were writing a dictionary, what would nagging be? Now, I'm going to give you a definition that is not the definition of the dictionaries, but when you hear it, most of the women here will say, no, that's not right, that can't be true, uh, and they'll actually complain it's not right, it's not fair even. And the men will hear it and say, yep, that's it, that's better than the dictionary because it understands. You see, nagging, ladies, is when you are in the right. That's nagging, when you're in the right. Now, most people in dictionaries think it's when you repeat yourself over and over and over and repeat yourself again, and then when you repeat yourself, you're nagging. But you see, I've just repeated myself several times, and I wasn't nagging. Nagging is not just repeating yourself. It's not that you've just gone on and on about something. That's not nagging, that's just irritating. Nagging can happen when you only say something once. If it's the right thing you say and you are in the right and the other person is in the wrong, they will feel nagged even though you don't repeat it. See, nagging is the danger of being on the high moral ground. You may have only mentioned the garbage needing to be taken out or the grass needing to be mown. But if he knew that was his job and he knew that it was overdue and that he knew he was being lazy and careless and not done it, then the ever so gently reminder is enough to get him blowing his stack about being nagged, even though it's only mentioned once, because you are in the right. That's why it's nagging. Because you're in the right and he's wrong. And there's nothing that he can do about it other than put his tail between his legs and take the garbage out or mow the grass, which is tricky with a tail between your legs. Or he can go to the alternative of exploding in that unreasonable and foolish resentment. I'll get around to it when I want to get around to it. And, don't you? and he becomes even more stupid than he was in not doing it in the first place. If, on the other hand... You who nag are in the wrong. Well, it won't be nagging. See, if he's already mowing the grass, if he's already put out the garbage and you remind him, you can remind him a thousand times. He won't be offended in the least. In fact, if you keep reminding him, he'll be smirking inside because when you put your head out the window, you'll see the grass is mowing. When you look at the garbage, it's already been put out and he will have enjoyed seeing you make a fool of yourself continually talking about something that he's already done. It's never nagging when you're in the wrong. It's always when you are in the right. Now, most nags, when they hear this, and of course there's none here, but when they hear this, are deeply offended. Because if I'm in the right, then what am I supposed to do about it? Just let the grass grow? Just let the garbage pile up? How can it be wrong to say something when you're in the right? Doesn't being in the right give you the right to speak? 
It's why wives are so commonly stereotyped as nags, and if you're deeply offended by what I've said, well, get a sense of humour. It's why wives are stereotyped as being nags, and men are never stereotyped as being nags, because men are rarely ever in the right. Women are frequently. When has a husband ever been on a high moral ground? But it's also because nagging is actually about authority and power in relationship. It's related to the problem of justified anger. So when I'm angry because I'm frustrated because of my selfishness and, and being frustrated, I, I get wound up and angry and I, then I can generally be talked out of my anger and in time I'll realise that it was all part of my sinfulness, not my righteousness, and then I'm even embarrassed about my anger and ask people to forgive me for my outburst and I try to learn how to control my anger better. But when my anger is righteous, when rights have been trammelled, when the innocent has been hurt, when evil has been done, when I'm on the high moral ground, it's much harder to get over the anger. It's easier to want satisfaction, to demand an apology, to insist on my rights. It becomes a matter not so much of pride but of principle. And being on the high moral ground is very dangerous. For with justified anger against somebody, it can make it hard to forgive and quite easy to hold resentments, destroy relationships, bear a grudge. But, but you can say... If I keep forgiving, then won't people be getting away with wrongdoing? Won't we be treating sin with contempt if everything is forgiven all the time? So what do we do when we see our brother sin against us? That's the question that we're dealing with in this part of Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 following, and today particularly verse 21 following. It's not seeing your brother sin, but 18, 15 your brother sins against you. I may see my brother sin in driving down the road like a, a maniac and a lunatic. That's not what it's talking about. It's when he does the wrong thing to me. Then I'm on the high moral ground. And that is a very dangerous place to be. What do I do then? Now, late last year, we did our last study on this passage, verses 15 to 20 of Matthew 18. And in it, there is, Jesus gives a four-step what you should do. First step, go and speak to him privately about it, just you and he alone. And seek to win him back as a brother. If he won't repent, if he won't see the problem, then go with two or three witnesses. Witnesses of the conversation maybe witnesses of the crime as well but more likely witnesses of the conversation and talk to him about it so that you've got some other people to help you mediate in the conversation and can bear witness that you have tried to reconcile with him and what you spoke to him but if he won't listen to the witnesses well then bring him before the church with the witnesses who can say we've tried to reconcile but he won't listen and see if the church can get him to come around and if he won't listen to the church then the last thing you do the fourth step you see is treat him as a gentile and a tax collector 
and I spoke last time of the way in which Jesus treats a Gentile as a tax collector is seeking their salvation. You no longer can treat him as a brother because he's put himself outside brotherliness. But you do not now exclude him from church. It's not about excommunication from church. And you do not treat him badly because that's not what you do with Gentiles and tax collectors. What you do with them is you seek to tell them about the mercy of God and preach the gospel to them that they might be reconciled. So when my brother sins against me, always my motivation is to win him back. To win him back to me, to win him back into fellowship with others, to win him back into relationship with God. It's when Jesus gives this answer that we read Peter's question which kicks off today's study, verse 21. Then Peter said to, came up and said to him, Lord, how often do I forgive, uh, will my brother sin against me? How often? And I forgive him. As many as seven times? Now I think Peter's trying to be generous at this point. Apparently rabbinical discussions said that you should forgive three times and then the fourth time punish. But... Peter's saying, well, should I do seven times? Would that be right? It's a real problem. Last year, year before, I can't remember which now, I read a blog by a a Sydney uh, writer called Kerry Sackville where she talked to the difference between herself and her husband. She said she forgives anyone, anything in about a minute where her husband will hold a grudge for a long, long time. Quote, If someone wrongs my husband, he can simmer with resentment for years. And so she speaks of the importance of forgiveness and the need of our society to be forgiving, the need of our public discussion to be more forgiving. But she goes on to see how complicated forgiveness is, realising that there are times when you shouldn't forgive. So she writes... When should we forgive and when should we hold back? Obviously, the sincerity of the apology is key, but that's only one factor. Many abusive men apologise sincerely, weeping and begging forgiveness before thumping their wives the next time they lose their temper. Some betrayals go too deep. For any kind of forgiveness, no matter how remorseful the person is, And most sincere apology doesn't guarantee that a behaviour will change. I've apologised a hundred times for yelling when I'm tired and overwhelmed, but I'm probably going to yell again when I'm exhausted next week. So here are the problems. Do I forgive people when they're unrepentant? Do I believe people when they are repentant and then go and do the same thing again and again. And how many times do I go on forgiving somebody, either when they're unrepentant or when they're repentant, but keep on repeating the offence and so presumably aren't repentant? Kerry Sackville, not a Christian, an atheist, has no answer but concludes, I know there's a point beyond which we should forgive... I just don't know where that point can be found. In the meantime, I guess I'll keep erring on the side of forgiveness. And if you're my friend and you wrong me and you say you're sorry, I promise I'll totally let it slide. But you have to do the same for me. Because 
if there's one thing I can't forgive, it's someone holding a grudge. Which sadly doesn't augur too well for her husband who bears grudges and simmering resentment for years and it doesn't augur too well for her marriage if she can't forgive someone who holds a grudge. Peter is going down the the Kerry Sackville line of forgiveness. Once, twice, three, seven times. But he's still wanting to put a limit somewhere. At some time, surely I don't forgive yet again. Seven was a a big limit. It's, It's not just once or twice wrong. Seven times and still forgive is... Well, that's very patient. He may also be remembering that Jesus taught in his prayer on the Sermon on the Mount that we should ask forgiveness as we too are forgiven and concludes that with the maxim, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And then we read, Jesus shocking answer in verse 22 Jesus said to him I do not say to you seven times but 70 times seven the 70 times seven is Jesus overstatement back to Peter's overstatement Peter thinks he's making a big overstatement seven times Jesus says nothing on it he's saying seven who's counting are you going to refuse on the eighth occasion He's not now saying, no, no, it's 70 times 7. So when it's 70 times 7 plus 1, then you can punish them. But up until then, just keep a count. That would be an absurdity. But rather, what he's doing is raising the whole concept of forgiveness. And you're right to refuse your brother's forgiveness. Thank you. The number he chooses may be just a play on Peter's 7. But it also may refer back to Genesis 4 where Lamech, the wicked descendant of Cain, proudly boasts. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. It could be an allusion back to that. For nobody in the Old Testament is quite as unpleasant as Lamech. He is really a very nasty piece of work. And He doesn't pay an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I've killed a man for just simply wounding me. A young man, I've killed him because he just struck me. He is a man of excessive vengeance. And so Jesus may be playing off the man of excessive vengeance by saying, no, we've got to be excessive forgiveness people. When you start counting the number of times you forgive, you, like Lamech, are looking forward to revenge, to paying back to retaliation. You're not being a member of the kingdom. Strike one. Strike two. Why are we calling that? Because we want strike three so that we can say the man's out. We're actually looking for the moment when we can give them what we think they deserve. But Jesus says the kingdom is compared to be a king who judges with forgiveness. This is what the kingdom has become like with this king. He settles accounts, but he forgives freely his servant. 
a servant who owes him a vast sum of money. And those who are in the kingdom will be people of such forgiveness. For that is the nature of the kingdom of God. That is the nature of the kingdom that Jesus was bringing into the world. And so we come to Jesus telling parable. It really is a telling parable, isn't it? In some ways, preaching this parable from verse 23 to 35 is extraordinarily difficult because if you didn't get it when it was read to you, then my preaching is not going to help you all that much, is it? It's one of those ones that slaps you in the face that you can't help but read it and say, yes, that must be so. But there are a couple of little things I would draw your attention to that will just heighten the nature of the impact of the passage. You see, it really is about patience and forgiveness. Notice that the servant, who is actually called a slave, doesn't ask for forgiveness. He asks for patience. He's offering to pay all to the very last cent, but he needs time. And he doesn't want to be sold on, he and his family, into further slavery in order for the master to get something out of some recompense, some 40 cents in the dollar of a kind of bankruptcy. He says, no, no, if you can just give me time, I'll pay it all. The amount he owes is enormous. If your eyes are good enough to read the footnotes, which is pretty hard in these Bibles... Uh, you'll see the ESV says that a talent was a monetary unit worth about 20 years' wages for a labourer. He owed 10,000 talents. And he thinks he's going to be able to pay it back. We're talking of a sum that is just beyond what you would expect any slave to ever be able to earn or any working man to ever be able to earn. How will he ever pay this back? It is so huge. And so he asks time. He asks the king to be patient. And the king, the king gives him something which is much greater than patience. The king gives him something which is much greater than time. The king gives him forgiveness. He absolves him of the debt. He cancels the IOU in verse 27 and out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is some king, one who is wealthy enough to be able to forgive a fortune and one who is merciful enough to be willing to forgive a fortune even when the man's not asking for forgiveness. Yet, as we know, the parable is set up that we may see the contrast between the king who forgives and the servant who doesn't forgive and will not forgive. For the very same man who is forgiven so much beyond all human comprehension will not forgive his fellow servant who owes him a hundred denarii. Now, again, If your eyesight has recovered the first time, you look down and find what a denarii is worth. And a denarii, footnote 9, is a day's wage for a labourer. It is a very, very small amount, and especially a small amount in comparison. But there is a comparison, not just a contrast here. The comparison is kept as close as possible 
by using the same wording in verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. The two are the same in their pleading for patience. But the contrast couldn't be greater. The size of the money, 20 years work as opposed to 100 days work. Massive difference. The attitude of mercy couldn't be greater than the attitude of law. And the forgiveness of the king couldn't be different to the imprisonment of the slave. What we have, of course, is the wicked hypocrisy of this servant. And that wicked hypocrisy shows the righteousness of the judgment that falls upon him the rightness of the judgment of the king upon him. When told by the whistleblowers of the evil, thankless hypocrisy of the servant, the king orders the servant to be handed over, not to the jailer for imprisonment, but to the torturer to be punished. Again, you'll see there's a different word down there. In verse 30, it's about putting this man in prison to get repayment. But in verse 34, and in anger his master delivered him over to the jailers, footnote 10, Greek, torturers. There's no doubt that torturers is what is meant. It's just I think we're a little bit queasy about putting the word torturer in the text, which Jesus wasn't when he told the story. That is, he's not now being put in a prison to take time to repay the loan. He's being handed over for punishment. The debt he owed, he should repay. But the evil he did should be repunished, should be punished. See, he has no understanding of forgiveness, only of law, of right, of morality, of recompense, of justice. That is the danger of being on the high moral ground. Because you are there, you think you can demand it of others, And you do not remember that doesn't matter how high high the moral ground you are on, compared to God, you're in a ditch. There is no high moral ground compared to God. All this, you see, leads to the dreadful warning of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 35 that finishes the chapter. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. For there is a judgment... There is a time when the king will settle accounts and those who want law and justice, morality, will get reward and punishment for that's what they want. And those who do not extend mercy will not be given mercy for if they'd ever received mercy, they would be gladly extending it to others. In relationship with God, you can be a law person or you can be a mercy person. Given my track record for sinfulness, I'm a mercy person. The last thing I want face to face with God is justice. That is something that only a fool or a sinless person wants. I don't want justice, I want mercy. But you can't be a mercy person and keep on demanding justice for others. If you're a mercy fan, you've got to extend mercy. And if you're unwilling to extend mercy... 
It's an indication that you're still a justice person. And the just will get justice. The inability to forgive comes from the failure to ever receive forgiveness. It's, it's a symptom that indicates you haven't got it yet. You see, our Heavenly Father is like the King of Jesus' parable. He's the judge who will judge righteously. But he is also the loving and merciful King who will pay the price for our failures and so extend mercy and pardon and wipe out our IOUs. And the magnitude of his forgiveness is seen in the cost to him to extend such mercy, namely the death of his one and only son, who takes our debts upon himself and pays for them in full. I really like the article that I referred to earlier. She likes forgiveness. She wants forgiveness. She thinks forgiveness is the way to go. She's right in so many ways, but she doesn't understand forgiveness because she has no concept of atonement, no concept of redemption. She uses the word redemption. Doesn't everybody deserve a second chance? Doesn't everybody deserve to be redeemed? And the answer is no, no one deserves to be redeemed. Redemption is given freely by God to people who don't deserve it. And it comes at the cost, not to us, but to him who sent his son to die on our behalf. But once you understand the price that he has paid for us, then there is no debt that cannot be paid. There's no sin that cannot be forgiven. For he has paid in full all our debts. Forgiveness comes not from ignoring our faults, not, not from being serious, serious about our sin. It, doesn't all, it also doesn't come from our sincerity in the apologies we make. It comes from the atonement that God has won for us in the death of the Lord Jesus. Forgiveness is in the hands of the one who gives it. That's why give is in the middle of the word forgiveness. It's in the hands of the one who gives it. God gives it. It costs him, his son, to give it to us. Otherwise, injustice is not addressed. Evil triumphs. Sin doesn't matter. But sin does matter. Evil is conquered by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only unforgivable sin is to reject the Saviour's death for you. For then there is no forgiveness available. And you can see this rejection of the Saviour's death, this rejection of the forgiveness won for you, when people are unwilling to forgive the minor sins that others commit against them. A few weeks ago, a wonderful elderly saint went to be with her Saviour. Kitty, or Kathy, was a Hungarian Jew caught up in the Second World War, losing most of her family in the Holocaust. She had a dreadful time through the war, living in as a Jew, through dreadful places and dreadful ways. When she came to Australia as a refugee after the war, she came in contact with Christians and was led to her saviour. Some years later, our friend Kel Richards wrote her biography and under his and her encouragement, it was entitled Forgiving Hitler. Her stand as a Christian had already alienated herself from much of the Jewish community to write a book called Forgiving Hitler was unforgivable. 
for most of them. How can you forgive Hitler? To which Kitty would say, how can I accept God's forgiveness and continue my righteous rage against Hitler? If God has forgiven me at the cost of his own son, what you do to me is but nothing in comparison. And so I have no right to stand on high moral ground and condemn you. I'm not on rights, I'm on forgiveness. If you know the forgiveness of God that is in the redemption of Jesus' crucifixion, then you must forgive from the heart all who sin against you. Forgiveness must just be your knee-jerk response to whatever people do to you whenever they do it to you. That's a turn the other cheek is the teaching of Jesus, isn't it? We are people who just accept that people will do bad things to us and it doesn't matter because our Lord has forgiven us the dreadful things we've done to other people and to him. You've been forgiven everything at the cost of God's own son. Well, as a person of forgiveness, then you must forgive others from the heart. For love keeps no record of sins against it. And we are the people who love. Because our Saviour loved. If he so loved me, I should love you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your forgiveness that you have brought us through that death and resurrection. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to so embrace your forgiveness, to so value the cost that you paid to bring it to us, that we may always freely, openly forgive others and not see ourselves as righteous judgmental but always willing to forgive and to pardon and we pray father for this forgiveness from our hearts through jesus christ our lord amen andrew